It is a center for higher learning. It is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls. This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast. They'll teach you things you can't unlearn. Brought to you by Cryptocurium.com. Hello, and welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast, Episode 60. This is the podcast dedicated to Call of Cthulhu and other horror and Lovecraft-related role-playing games. I'm Keeper Dan. And I'm Keeper Murph. Glad to have you here. And I'm Keeper Chad. Walking to Glafetagen. He did it. In this episode, we're cracking open a mysterious tome written in half-mad scribblings, but it's probably not the one you think. And for the main topic, we talk about our alma mater and why it makes for such a great home base. And we're going to start things off in our campus prayer. Miskatonic University Campus Crier. Campus Crier's Miskatonic used student paper. Here's we're going to start off with uh, feedback and news. And this is being recorded on July 6th, 2014. And first up, uh, I guess we've got the this animation, uh, something yeah. that I, yeah, it's it's called the lurking fear. It is not actually that story, which I think was maybe a misstep because uh, you set expectations. But it is a really nice animation, uh, and it's in two parts. It's cool to check out. Since definitely inspired by Lovecraft stories, it is done by Eric Koning who of uh, DreamWorks and Disney and The Simpsons. And it's oh. kind of, yeah, it's kind of comic and um, it kind of pulp and super fun and great imagery. Really yeah, he stuff. says in the, the this is just uh, the, uh, the notes underneath the YouTube page. It says it, it mixes the humor of Buster Keaton, the adventure of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the terror of H.P. Lovecraft, which is a pretty cool, uh, pulpy little mix there. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way this looks. That's just beautiful. Yeah, the animation's really beautiful. They, use, they sort of use um, two-dimensional uh, cell-style artwork uh, with three-dimensional modeling. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting effect. Yeah, you can tell it's kind of like a... It, it's not... Like, parts of it were concept, mainly. So, like, at the very beginning, the the ocean liner coming into the uh, to the port runs right through the dock and keeps going into the mainland. But, you know, what can you do? It's not very long. Then, I think it's two episodes. They're both about six minutes or so. Yeah. So, nice little short film. Then next up we have our uh, friends at Modifius. Those guys have been really prolific on getting partnerships and and uh, new items set up. They've teamed up with the folks that make a board game called Heroes of Normandy, and they're doing Shadows over Normandy. So they Which is they took this really World War II cool. board game, and yeah, they made it all mythosy. 
It's very cool. Really awesome. Yeah, and that's a that's uh, kind of like a squad based um, board game um, using the hero system, I believe. The so, hero, which, like the hero click system. No, no, the heroes system, not the hero clicks system. Heroes What's the, system. Okay. What is the hero board system? Board game system. I have no idea. I'm okay. just reading the press release. Thank you for calling me out, though, Jeff. <laughs> okay. I thought. I'm sorry. I thought you. I thought you. No, no, I have no idea. I apologize. I'm. Not, if John was here, he could tell us all about it. But that's not my bag. Um, I really wish I had some people to play this with, though. And then it could be yeah, my bag. It's, you know, well, since the original game that's based on its Heroes of Normandy, you know, I'm, so it's yeah, using, these, you know, whatever system that uses to uh, play. I think and, that these guys the were also. Are, I I, th- I want to say that these guys. Um, did some uh, stretch goals for the original Octoon Cthulhu uh, Kickstarter as well. So I think this is the payback for for some of that. Hmm. I think they yeah, did some, good some, some stuff, uh, some some little um, figures and stuff. Yeah, cool. this has uh, got some really great looking artwork and a whole bunch of stretch goals that have already been nailed. And Yeah, they had a, a goal of 5,000 pounds, which is not much at all, mainly because it's an existing game, and I think they just had to redo the art for it. And they're sitting yeah. at forty-five thousand pounds, so with twenty days to go or nineteen days to go, so they're they're definitely going through with it. Yeah, and I, I like yeah. I like Kickstarters like this because it's based on an existing product that's actually somewhat successful in the board game world. You know, in the in the mm-hmm. in the uh, military board game world, so they already have an existing product and and company and everything and all they're really doing is is just adjusting the content with the guys from octoon cthulhu mythos or um, i'm sorry with uh modifius and then using their existing connections and whatnot to produce the game which means it doesn't cost them nearly as much because they've already got all that set up so they're not starting from scratch per se which is really cool mm-hmm. yeah this so, is going to be a very cool looking game yeah looks really neat like i said i wish i had some Someone look like I could play board games like this with. And we get our next up on list here. We've got an interesting announcement from our own uh, Dr. Gerard. Yes, yes, indeed. I'm happy and proud to announce that Charles Gerard, that is me, uh, is going to be part of a Golden Goblin Press Kickstarter coming up. Uh, an, a new Invictus book is coming out. And the, uh, like, like the uh, New Orleans book, there's going to be a PDF accompanying it as a, as a stretch goal. So it's not guaranteed that this will happen. But if it does, um, four scenarios, additional scenarios, will be in a PDF. And Charles Gerard has penned one of them, A Whisper of Crones, which is set in the province of Syria. There's some information on the Golden Pre- Goblin Press um, Facebook and website, if you want to check it out. It's got uh, Oscar Rios will also be in that book. Uh, Andrew, Andrew Nicholson with a, a scenario called Son of a Star. And uh, Matt Puccio, A Balance oh, cool. of Blood. Yeah. So, and they're all kind of set on the edges of the, of the empire in the second century. So I, this is my first scenario, and I'm cool. super proud. So, yeah. Very. We're proud of you. We're, we're so happy you're able to get that. Uh, get that. Yeah. Up and yeah. going. It's so really cool. Neat. Congratulations, Charles Gerard. Wow. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah. I, I, this is super. It's a dream come true. So I. I yeah. I'm. I am 
super excited. And well, really we're just happy you we're here to see it happen. Me too. And and yeah, it's really fun to share it with you guys. You sort of my, you know, my Cthulhu posse. And uh, so keep your eyes out for the Invictus uh, Kickstarter coming out, and there'll be more announcements coming up. But uh, now, yeah, I'm now, I'm now untethered. I'm I'm able to talk about it since it's on the Facebook page. So super. Yeah, super we'll fun. make sure and keep everybody in the loop on when that starts up and. Uh, well, it's and, uh, and it's actually the a date has been announced. Oh God, I have to oh. announce. Yeah, a date a date for the Kickstarter. It, it's oh God. I, if you want to see this, these scenarios, please mark September twelfth on your calendar. Back the Kickstarter and help spread the word. Okay. So that's when it'll, the it's planning to launch is September twelfth. Everything's cool, in okay. editing now. It's not you know still cranking stuff out. The reference librarians locate various materials through their familiarity with the contents of the library. And for this card catalog, we have miskatonic-university.org. Yes. This is not something we've talked about. Is that Can we confirm that? Not that I can recall. All right. Well, this guy I, made a website okay. back in 19... 19- this has been around for a while. Yeah, it has. Yeah, this guy made it in 1997. He actually has Chaosium's license to do this, uh, which he, so he uses NPCs and, and stuff that's in some of the gaming material. It is basically meant to be a, a website of Miskatonic University. And since we're talking about Miskatonic University today, later in the show, uh, I thought I would drop this in. So it's got sections of. Um, on the different schools, you can actually look up departments. You can um, look up. There's an audio and video collection in the Orn Library. It's got resources. Uh, More importantly, you can purchase your own diplomas. You can. You can. Yeah, they have a lot of nice marketing. They've got yeah, swag. Yeah, they, they have some good swag. Um, they go with the Miskatonic squids. So that is yet another uh, mascot. I think. I actually, I think the squids is the lacrosse team, so it's all good. Okay, so each each uh, each mascot's a different team, yeah, a different okay. sport. Okay, because that's yeah, that that that's how we're joining this all into the multiverse. I see. Except sure. for the on the page for the squids, it says that it's the soccer team. Well, then it's the soccer team. I apologize. Oh yes, right. Did I did we not announce that Sandy Peterson joined the trustees of this? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that we was did a news item at some point, right? Yeah, I think that was a news item that we had I knew we had said something about it, and so I'm I think you're right there. Yeah. Um, I'm actually I and I know that because I almost bought a trustee membership whenever uh Sandy got his, just so I could say I had one as well. <laughs> but I didn't. And now I'm gonna have to, so I'll have to wait a few more days. Probably really the end nice. of the week. And give me a nice there's, little trustee membership. Cool. There's a nice interview with him on the uh, announcement page where he talks about some of his video game work. Um, 36 minute interview, video interview. And he's wearing a cool. red, white, and blue bow tie. I, think I saw that. Yeah. 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 He's a fun guy to talk to. Uh, they do have an an, uh, an orange library section, which is pretty cool. They have a lot of uh, audio, video, special collections, and stuff like that. Um, and then some some small snippets of information about the staff and administrators and stuff like that. It's really it's actually a pretty cool site. Looks very nice. Yeah. It's a fun little thing though. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's got all sorts of cool in-universe stuff that you can poke around and, and hopefully find something useful for uh, your games, and they've also got some cool swag. Yeah, and uh, also his he has a list of different schools, like so you can click on the School of Astronomy, and then in there he's got available classes for the School of Astronomy. So it's, it's um, in this case, Practical Astronomy. You know, and then you can go to the Practical Astronomy page, and it gives you a little snippet of info there about practical astronomy, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there's, it, it's got a decent amount of work in it. It's, it's really quite a neat little site. I like it. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> now we've got a history lecture, lecture coming up on the topic of the Ripley Scroll. From the Miskatonic University Department of History. Twenty-three mysterious scrolls copied from a lost original from the 15th century have mystified and inspired generations of occultists. The scrolls are named after an alchemist and Augustinian monk from Yorkshire named George Ripley. Ripley's poetry and writing outlined mysterious recipes for arcane substances and even gave instructions on how to produce one of alchemy's highest goals. One of his books, titled The Compound of Alchemy, subtitled Twelve Gates Leading to the Discovery of the Philosopher's Stone, helped spark a surge of interest in the esoteric arts in the 17th century following the English Revolution. John Dee, Robert Boyle, and Isaac Newton studied his writings obsessively. Many believed Ripley discovered how to turn lead and other substances into gold. He was thought to have used the fruits of his transmutation to fund a garrison of Knights of Malta and Rhodes to defend against the wily Turks. Ripley spent 20 years wandering Europe in search of the secrets of immortality and claimed he was successful. One of his drawings, called The Wheel, has been interpreted as a map of the solar system with the Earth at its center, and is said to contain codes that could unlock secrets in his other works. The Ripley Scrolls are 18-foot annotated illustrations describing what he called the black, white, and red stages of transformation. They contain elements of his poetry and alchemical instructions. In one illustration, dragon women eat frogs that are spitting fire. There are chicken kings and feathered planets. A figure called the Serpent of Arabia bites at the moon while blood drains down from an open wound in its belly, coating a copper-clad sphere where three wriggling tentacles reach up to feed like baby birds. Some drawings appear to be molecular models drawn centuries before their discovery. An alchemist in another drawing is depicted hunched over a flask that contains a toe. Each of them varies slightly, possibly copied by different artists, and the original scroll is lost to time. What happened to this original? Did Ripley create it himself? Could his map of the solar system be encoded with secret alchemical codes that could unlock the deeper knowledge of the universe? If he did indeed discover the secret of longevity, where has he gone, and what has he written since? To discuss your theories about the true meaning of the Ripley Scrolls, drop a note addressed to Dr. Gerard at the Arkham Post Office on North Peabody Avenue. Ask for Eli Whitaker. No other address is necessary. (laughs) Who's Eli Whitaker? Just out of morbid curiosity. He's the postmaster of Arkham. Oh, that's right. Sorry. 
I should have known. Oh, these are freaky. Yeah. Some of these are weird, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the illustrations are, are kind of awesome. Yeah, they're, they're that strange bit of uh, medieval racist-centered art, almost. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you've got the Turkish guy holding the wheel image itself, and then it's just weird, some strange stuff in here, man. Yeah, lots the, of the, the king-headed phoenix chicken thing. I don't know what the hell that is. Yeah, chicken kings. I love it. There's two kinds yeah. of chicken kings in this <laughs> scroll I found it's, somewhere. I, yeah, it's really weird. The dragon sitting on the earth, bleeding its heart, bleeding into the oceans while it's eating the moon, which is holding the sun. Right. Not really sure what all that is. Oh, that's actually that's a different version. See, see, there are there are a bunch of different scrolls and and different versions pop up. I've noticed something that happens a lot is that artists seem to like to redo the scrolls. So there's there's a lot of contemporary artists who have taken the scrolls and redone it and put more color in, and uh, I guess as practice or maybe as maybe their alchemy folks, but uh, it has a following, which is also, you know, kind of a potential game hook, right? Right. Yeah. It's always nice when you can dip back to history for weird crap that you didn't know existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anything that's got basis in real history that you can bring into game stuff is a lot of fun. Anyway, the players can do extra research on this and actually tie it in. Right, and there are resources available there is you know there are printings of this thing you could make props if you want to rip a page out yeah. of the thing and have some interpretation some of his actual alchemical works are um, just reading them nowadays being you know alchemical in nature uh, for the time makes them perfect like filler text just to dump into like a prop um, mm -hmm. grimoire or something of that nature that you were doing, that would be yeah. a good place to go, I think, as well. Um, instead of getting the the more commonly seen John D stuff, you could definitely get some of the um, some of the George Ripley stuff. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's really probable that he he didn't didn't write the Ripley scrolls, but you know, right? But he course. did write a number of other things, like, right? Uh, His poetry's in there. He's got one work uh, called uh, Liber Secretissimus, which is the whole work of the composition of the philosophical stone and grand elixir and the first solution of the gross bodies. <laughs> I and love I love old titles, man. It's, it's like, great. Man. It's like just another page of text, you know. <laughs> it's nuts, man. Uh, and that's sufficiently strange that you could just dump it anywhere without any preface to it. <laughs> You'd just mm -hmm. be like, what the hell? And you could search for certain words and replace them out, which I find to be um, quite fun as well. So you know, you could take out Philosopher's Stone and replace it with like, I don't know, Shining Trapos of Hadrian or something, and, mm -hmm. and it just make as much sense just because it's so crazy to start with. Yeah, and so. there are references in there that would, you know, there are references like to, to the Black Sea. Yeah, could be you know something in the Dreamlands or you know. To me, this this kind of smacks of dreamlands. Anything surrealist, even though it's yeah. far... It's really easy to tie back in that, that yeah. sense. Yeah, right. But yeah, that's a good find. I like that a lot. George and this Ripley. would have been not exactly contemporary. Well, 
uh, Ripley would have been contemporary to the one of the possible authors of the Voynich manuscript, which we'll be talking about in a bit. But first up, we got a cryptocurium spot here. And what uh, they've done is they've also opened up an Etsy shop to go along with the regular actual store. And this is going to be an outlet for kind of one-offs and uh, like the occasional uh, uh, discontinued item, that sort of thing. Yeah, this is really cool. He's got a copy of um, the Narlothotep Idol on here that's a slightly mm-hmm. variant of the one that he mass released. So, And this one has like a, a different paint job. So the, the, um, the, I forget what you call that, Egyptian crown hood cap thing. Anyway, it's, uh, it's painted gold. All the accents are gold on top of the, the typical black resin cast. And it looks really, really cool. Um, I have the regular one, and it's awesome. Um, but this one, the gold stands out a little bit more. And I think that's really awesome. Uh, yeah. It's really good. Um, so that's that's cool that you can get that. I imagine he's doing some overflow into this as well, maybe. Yeah. Just, you know. It, I like the idea of having a, a secondary place for, you know, one-off type stuff. Plus, you know, some folks will just go to Etsy and just do searches for Oh yeah, you know, I do. And- I, I have it. I have an IFTTT thing set up to search for Cthulhu on Etsy um, ah. several times a day. It, it sends me back an email or a little notification with um, the item that's being sold that mentions Cthulhu or or Lovecraftian, and uh, so I get to see all the, the cool stuff that comes in through Etsy that way. Mm-hmm. I, I actually buy a, a quite a bit of crap off Etsy <laughs> in that theme, at least. <laughs> Oh, Just because I'm, I'm kind of an idiot that way. Hey, can I? I, I don't want to hijack the the spot, uh, the the cryptocurium spot. But did you guys see the um, under the pyramid set? Is there a reason? Yes. Should we? Oh my god, well, it's beautiful. Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, I was actually gonna do a quick mention of that because okay, you know that will be available when this episode drops next weekend. Yeah, well, unless they sell out, there's only. 25. Oh, you mean the uh, the the new set from him? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I looks love, awesome. I love that Sphinx so much. Yeah, that is really cool. And do we know how much he's going to offer it for yet? Is it going to be? No. We don't. Um, the information will be. Out. Yeah, the information will probably be out by the time we um, air this. But he's saying more information is coming uh, a few days from yeah. now. Tomorrow. The short short answer is be on the mailing list, and we'll find out as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just it's a, a whole prop set, and it looks beautiful. It does. It looks really, really good. I, I really like that one a lot. Um, I might actually have to get that one too. I'm, I'm waiting to see. I guess but what yeah, do you think he's good. doing with the? Is that a Gug um, Sphinx? What do you think is happening there? I don't know. I don't know craziness that's what's happening it's awesome maybe that's why the nose fell off because it was really just this um horrible abysmal tentacled mandible maw thing i don't know right (laughs) i don't know dude it looks really cool though and some sort of little thingy in a glass vial 
Mm-hmm. I know, right? It's great. It's sample. I like the quality of his uh, coffee staining actually on his uh, on his paper. It looks really good. If you can, if you can pull off that level on all of them, which I'm sure he can. Um, that's really an awesome uh, looking stain he's got going there on the paper. The aging effect. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking Not forward to, to seeing more details on that. Yeah, I agree. That's a great one, and and it's a really good story. And if you wanted more info about how he does his staining effect, I think we actually interviewed him way back when, and he told us how to stain some paper to make it look, you know, to to right. age, which is pretty cool. Coffee and tea <clears throat> and ovens. Now remember, for security reasons, we have to lock readers in. There's a rope next to the door. If you need anything, you pull on that, and that's going to ring a bell upstairs. Here it is. Special Collections Room. Pride of MU's Library. Good luck with your research. Alright, it's been a while, but we're back into the Special Collections Vault. And uh, we're this time we're going to be covering the Voynich Manuscript. And this isn't something Lovecraft created or even one of his contemporaries. This is an actual book that has been brought to the attention of the world in 1912 and still has yet to be translated. Yes, although there are claims... There are claims. Yeah. Sketchy. Of course it is. Yeah. Sketchy Recently, claims. there have been some folks that have actually come up and one guy said he, he managed to translate like six words. Yeah. Just this year, right? I think yeah. In February, January, February. Yeah. Yeah. It was earlier this year. And so, yeah, it was kind of odd to hear somebody come up and have an announcement regarding the Voynich manuscript, you know, now, but. That was somebody that what they did is they looked for imagery and then tried to focus on the words on the immediate vicinity of the imagery to say, okay, you know, I know what this is, therefore the words here must be something like this. Mm-hmm. So using uh, uh, various constellation imagery in there and... um I think there was a bull or something like that that was like, okay, this is obviously the word Taurus, which isn't very right. obvious to much of anybody else, but. <laughs> but it's hard to confuse with other words. Yeah. Distinctive, like a search term. Yeah. I've got a, a I'm going to link to the PDF of his study there. Oh, cool. Um, if you want to get super nerdy, but the basic facts of the Voynich, Voynich manuscript, um, it's a, if I may, mm-hmm. uh, it's an illustrated book. Uh, it's mostly full of strange botanical drawings um, with with uh, annotations in a language and alphabet that no one else has been able to uh, decipher to date, including code breakers from World War One and World War Two that tried to decode it. Um, it's been carbon dated to the early 15th century, so early 1400s. Um, 
has a long herbal section, but it also has astronomical charts, uh, weird biology diagrams. Many of the plants depicted uh, are not of this earth. <laughs> um, there's a whole section that has naked ladies boiling in green goo with pipes coming out as though something is either being piped in or piped out of that green goo naked lady soup. Um, <laughs> That's the most so, awful description I've ever heard, by the way. Yeah, the images are just really, really uh, trippy. Yeah, <laughs> super weird. And there's a lot of them, too. There's not, it's not like just a few. Oh, yeah. Pages. It's it's like a hundred pages or so. Yeah, this is like a two hundred uh, yeah, page book. Three hundred, yeah. yeah. And oh, is it three hundred? Yeah. Yeah, and and versions that well, the version that is known, um, popped up. Uh, the guy. It's named after the guy who sort of last owned it. Um, yeah. His name. Yeah. It was a uh, book collector named Voynich that he had acquired it and. That it was, it from that point, it's been heavily researched and trying to find where this thing possibly could have come from. And there have been a lot of theories and and ideas that are, you know, probably pretty definitively just made up. But there's all sorts of possible sources for where this came from. And the vellum that it's made out of is what was carbon dated. So the actual writing on it, who mm -hmm. knows? Right. But it does have that look of that medieval manuscript oh, yeah. to it. So it, for I sure, mean, if it is a reproduction, it was a very, very convincingly done one, and most likely a contemporary one as well, because it there is some records of it having been owned by certain individuals in the past. Mm -hmm. um, some of those, like for instance, it very well might have been owned, and this is uh, open to conjecture by almost everyone, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor uh, Rudolph II, mm -hmm. uh, and then shifted down through his line there for a little while, uh, eventually coming to you know a couple of alchemists, um, and then I think eventually it made it to Johannes Marcus Marcy of Cronland, who was the first verifiable owner of the book, I think. That you can actually say, okay, this guy actually had it. So I mean, even even if it isn't, even if it is a, a reproduction, it has to be a, a you know a, a 17th century reproduction on 14th century vellum, yeah, or 15th century vellum. So it's it's pretty interesting one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. One thing that was pretty common of the time was that vellum was reused because all you have to do is take right. a blade and scratch off whatever was written on it, and then it gets reused again. So it's very hard to nail down specifically. But this thing's just so bizarre. And there have been other podcast episodes that have covered it. Uh, uh, mm. Ken and Robin covered an episode about it uh, in uh, ep their episode 65. Then they did the update about the uh, potential translations in episode 79. So we'll have links to both of those in the show notes. And then also and one of my favorite shows, Blurry Photos, did an episode on it too. That's great. I, I was looking it. through their catalog. I missed it. So I'm I did too. I was that. just I was binge listening to yesterday. I had a, a six hour drive on my hands yesterday and I was binge listening to all sorts of stuff and somehow I didn't see that while I was driving. But I was driving. So 
Yeah. They they cover it in pretty good depth there too. But the the reason that we have this in our card catalog is because this book has also been mentioned in the Call of Cthulhu game. Right. And I was going through my various books and actually I didn't see a reference to it in my more recent one. My uh let's see which volume is this my 5.1 has it listed in the section on the Necronomicon, and it's actually stating that the Voynich manuscript is like just another version of the Necronomicon. It, it's almost like they just right. took the name because yeah, that's basically what they've done. I think yeah, it, it's the they get the same thing in six in version six. Okay. Um, it's on um, page 113 under other versions. There mentions the uh, the Voynich manuscript as being a, 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 a presently in the co- in the collection of the University of Pennsylvania, written in Greek and Latin, using Arab script, um, which is not yeah true. Yeah, <laughs> the, so, the, I mean, they the, just the, use the, name the actual used. script is unknown and the language is unknown. So. And it's in at Yale. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually yeah. the only copy. Yeah, I mean, they just is at saw the name. Beinecke Library. Yeah, yeah. In, and uh, and it's definitely not only 116 pages. So the actual right. game info was completely inaccurate for some reason. But what I was thinking is that this is very useful in game for any number of other things. I was thinking that this would make a great Dreamlands relic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, sure. All the bizarre plant oh, yeah. life that are pictured in it. Well, there you go. That's all right. Dreamlands based. It's a journal or something from a native of the Dreamlands, which is why it's completely untranslatable. And crazy as um, a loon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I like that. I also there are. Go ahead. Oh well, I just you know I loved Ken Height's uh, you know coverage of it, and I just have become obsessed with this idea of a medieval space program. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, uh, that's another one. Is is well, Dreamlands is kind of like that, but you know maybe there was some kind of um, what do they call it? Psychic dislocation. Uh, you know, sort of the John Carter of Mars space. Uh, astral projection or, you know, instead of actually having machinery, um, somehow having spells or formulas that will transport you to another planet. So it could be, you know, the plant life of Mars or, or, you know, any, any planet that you want. And there are some plants in here that look suspiciously like elder things. I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) Nice. Um, I, uh, there's there's some weird stuff in here, man. Yeah. There's also some things that look like the uh, the mango roots from Harry Potter. So I mean, there's no telling what the hell is going on in this guy's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's just a whole world of crazy, and it's absolutely fantastic. Another awesome fact about it is that so the pages in the current version have been reshuffled. It seems like it it, it was rebound and like reordered, uh, maybe a few times. And so it's like a, a shuffled deck of cards, and they've been able to determine that they think 34 pages are missing, based on the because the there are number there's a numbering system. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you've got missing pages. 
I mean, that, you know, that right there is an open invitation to, say, have them pop up or have them be a, uh, a key to the rest of the pages. It could easily be those 34 pages could be their own little tome that becomes a MacGuffin that you could use in a game. Yeah. For Not to mention the fact that apparently it was owned for a number of centuries by the Jesuits, and you could easily make the claim that the Jesuits were trying to control the information uh, and so removed pages, and then you could pull in that whole angle if you needed to in, in uh, your game, whether it be you know on the state side or on the European continent. It would be equally easy to, to yank that in. Um, so one of the theories is surrounds uh, Roger Bacon, who could have been a, an author. Um, in a letter that was in the book, it theorized that Roger Bacon, a friar who lived in the 13th century, was the author. And so he was an advisor to Pope Clement IV, who was kind of, and he was he served as kind of a bridge between the church and philosophy and science. Uh, but then that Pope died, and the idea of philosophy and science insinuating itself into the church was not so popular. And so the new Pope threw him in prison for heresy. Uh, somehow he gets out, returns to Oxford, England, where he continued to study. And one, like he, there's all these legends around him. One of them is that he created an animated brazen head that could answer any question. Um, and that, uh, obviously, I mean, we know that that would be easy to pull off with like puppetry and, and Amigo brain canister. But um, <laughs> he did some trailblazing in optics. Um, and he might have been the first European to describe a recipe for gunpowder. So he's kind of one of those... Uh, bleeding edge guys that would make great, you know, if you're doing a, uh, a, a uh, um, well, it wouldn't quite be medieval. It's a little late for medieval, but if you're doing a, a campaign in that era, Early Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually used to own a, uh, a reprint of a Roger Bacon grimoire that Lovely. he had, which was really, really cool. I lost it in the flood, but, um, it was it was just a whole book of of strange symbols and you know those typical mathematical based uh, summoning charts and stuff similar to what you would see in like the um, the Simon Necronomicon almost but more complex and um, and then it was it was things like that but it was sprinkled with just absolutely ridiculous stuff like spells to cure your backache or something like that involving lemon juice. You know what I mean? It was just some weird stuff in there. Um, but it was, it was such a juxtaposition of strangeness that you just had to have it. Um, so if you can find that still, I'll try and see if I can find a, a link for that somewhere and uh, put it in the show notes. Awesome. Cool. There's also a reproduction that you can get of the Voynich manuscript. Yeah. And they, they want a pretty penny for it, but it looks really, really awesome. Yeah. It's a one-to-one accurate reproduction, including all of the fold-out pages that are in it. It's got, one thing that's kind of odd about it is that this book, it has like double folio pages, triple folio pages, and one quadruple folio page where it's folded four times down into the book, and then it opens up into this huge thing, and... So, yeah, 
that's this book is just so strangely put together. Yeah, and, just the construction itself is is its own kind of mystery. Yeah, love that. A bookhounds campaign would be uh, it'd be really fun to get experts in and yeah talk about just the actual construction. You could sort of have that ninth gate uh, slash uh, club Dumas thing where there are just the construction of the book itself reveals mm -hmm. some, some clue. Yeah. You know, the book might be something with all the weird folding and stuff that's in there. And the fact that the pages may have been reshuffled and rearranged, perhaps mm -hmm. if they were put into the correct locations yeah. and then folded in the right ways, it operates kind of like a, uh, Hellraiser puzzle box. Mmm, I love it. That's great. <laughs> That's crazy. That's a good idea, though. Nice. Yeah, you don't open the portal until you properly arrange the pages of the books because mm -hmm. it's rim bound. Maybe they're not missing. Maybe they don't appear until you get them in the correct order and the extra pages with the really hurtful shows up. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's great. That's really Actually, cool. Reordering it makes makes new pages. Yeah, makes the pages show up. Yeah, that's great. Uh, there's there's a lot of possibilities from this weird thing because one, it's real, which mm -hmm. is just <laughs> yeah, it's so utterly bizarre, and that it's been attempted to be translated so many times for so long, and nobody's had any real luck. There's the guy that did the few words based on imagery. And then there's some other folks that, uh, some botanists that think they identified some of the plants that are in there as being from South America. So, mm. you know, that's a possibility. But that's wow. even still kind of a long shot because these are all hand-drawn plants in there. There's no way to be sure of the actual quality of the artist. He very well could have been intending a daisy and it wound up looking like something... <laughs> You know, utterly bizarre. He could, and he could have, this could have been written by a man who had, you know, some sort of uh, tumor in his temporal lobe or something, or, mm -hmm. or his ocular, you know, that's just making him see this stuff that's not there, or making him perceive reality in some way that's not right. Yeah. You know, and so, or maybe, maybe, maybe everyone on the planet is infected with a certain parasite that makes us see things the way that we see things. And this guy was immune. And so he's <laughs> nice. trying to make a note of how the world really looks. And it looks so foreign to us because we don't see it that way because we're watching it through <laughs> these parasitic eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go a million different ways with this. It's, it's so crazy. Yeah. Well, and I'll, yeah. And the, the other thing about the, the fact that these plants don't, many of them don't seem to exist. I mean, they, they sort of do, but they're like Frankenstein plants, you know, where parts of one are glommed onto mm -hmm. another. But, um, that was actually kind of a common thing in, in medieval depiction of nature is that you'd have this effort to kind of make it conform to the cosmology of the time to actually uh, sort of God's world is ordered and therefore uh, a plant, you know, should reflect the, the sacred order in, in some way. And so, so it's very likely that he was putting symbols into his drawings and that was common at the time that you would, it, it's, it's half iconography and half, you know, trying to realistically depict the plants. But that means that there are codes 
within the actual drawing, the number of petals, the you know the balance, the the symmetry of the plant, all those things are are codes that you could pick up on and easily just run with however you want, especially if there's mythos influence, right? Mm-hmm. You know, imagine if some of these wound up being like, oh, this is the life cycle of uh, Dark Young. Right, right. Like, oh, this cute little thing. That's that's the baby. <laughs> that's the baby. <laughs> that's the most frightening progression I've ever seen. Then. <laughs> that's the baby. <laughs> Look at the cute little fern-looking thing. Oh, and then it turns into a woman in green sludge. Oh, and then it's a dark brown. Oh, <laughs> makes, that makes so much sense. It hurts my brain in the real world. You've also got these awesome characters from history, like like Bacon, um, like Rudolph the Second, like you mentioned, who right. was way into alchemy and astrology, mm-hmm. and a sort of red hot technology in Renaissance Prague. And Rudolph was a huge supporter, and the church was not so much a fan. But uh, his physician, it seems like, might have owned this book. That's whose name was actually traced to to the book. Right. And awesomely. His name was erased, but um, Voynich himself, when he was processing the book, discovered this, you know, the, the indentations of the name that were removed. And so uh, so Rudolph had it, which is awesome. Um, he basically spent his life looking for the Philosopher's Stone. He summoned Europe's top alchemist to his court. John Dee was there and John Kelly was there. Um, and he performed his own experiments in a private alchemy laboratory. The thing that I love is that he had this cabinet of curiosities that he collected tons of stuff that actually ended up taking up a whole wing of Prague Castle. And you can still <laughs> visit a, an entire street inside of Prague Castle. It's called Alchemist Alley, and that was his that was his creation. And so he he gathered all these things and, with the manuscript, and I just think it would be a kind of awesome, uh, almost a Friday the Thirteenth style campaign frame or or you know warehouse 13 where you have people either trying to get together the contents of this cabinet of curiosities or trying to make sure like that they never get together you know pre- trying to prevent these things from getting out in the world and in our era in, well sorry our era in cl- the classic era of call of cthulhu in the 20s mm-hmm. um things were showing up in sideshows in circuses so you'd basically have a campaign of of you know, kind of tracking these things down into the uh, to the corners of the earth, um, and they end up in some pretty weird places. The other interesting little tidbit of history, and there's another time period you could put this in. During the 1870s, um, after Rome fell to Vittorio Emmanuel II, they started going through, he issued a, a decree to go through and, uh, the city and find all of the Jesuit books, basically. You know, all of the Jesuit con- possessions, really, but books in particular. Uh, and they were you know, searching through the city and they eventually find a trap door that was in the Collegium Romanum Library, right? which once they opened it, had a huge collection of Jesuit books that had been hidden in the secret compartment and then evidently completely and utterly forgotten about. And then the vast majority of those were moved to the state library um, and then more even were stored in an attic in that same building. But, I mean, it just goes to show there's more and more just strange things where, you know, it's been around for so long that the history just... You know, it forgets about things eventually, and 
and then they come back and this is one of those things that just kind of disappeared off the stage for a, a couple of centuries you can do whatever the heck you want with it mm-hmm. yeah this guy Voynich would actually be a good NPC for classic era too he would have been living yeah um, and he's kind of an interesting guy himself if you wanted to get you know into international um, geopolitics he was he was a revolutionary so um, he joined up in 1885 and and then he fit, he tried to free some fellow conspirators in Poland and ended up getting caught <laughs> and they had been sentenced to death and he tried to free them from Warsaw Citadel and then he was arrested by the Russian police and then sent to a work camp in Tunka in Irkutsk escaped in 1890 from Siberia went to Beijing returned to Europe and then ended up in London where he opens well first of all he founds a society of friends for a free Russia in London <laughs> and um, opens a bookshop and then later he opens a bookshop in New York City moves to New York um, and becomes deeply involved in the antiquarian trade in, in around 1914 um, he gets the Voynich, Voynich manuscript in 1912 so he has it with him in New York, and then he stays in New York until 1930. So, uh, w- with the book in his possession, so he'd be an awesome NPC, uh, and possibly involving all kinds of uh, Russian intrigue. Right, and he also embarked on this this somewhat fantastic uh, world quest to kind of establish the Voynich manuscript. Manuscript is is a major document in the antiquarian trade, I guess, uh, because he was mainly convinced it was written by Roger Bacon. So he traveled all over Europe in like 1915, around in there, taking the manuscript with them in order to try and, oh, how would you say it, vet it, I guess, to these different places to see if they could give him some more info and see if he could uh, tie it to bacon and some other thing. So that's another little neat little tidbit there of how he kind of went all out on this thing. Yeah, he'd be a great be a great resource for consulting, or possibly he could be a supervillain. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Maybe he's looking for the lost pages because he or he, he can't figure out the order and he wants to bring back Narlistep or something. Yeah, right. Or he doesn't mm-hmm. know. Or maybe he's a, a sort of unwitting villain. And, yeah, maybe he's uh, just him. Right. And the investigators figure out that it must not be put in the right order <laughs> somehow. Settle down now, class. It's time for your next lesson. And for the main topic, we're going to cover some of the stuff that you can do using Miskatonic University as a setting for a campaign or scenarios or just as the home base for investigators, which is the most common use that I've personally done with it. And Mm -hmm. there have been, you know, plenty of things created by Chaosium as official game products that cover the school. There's been two volumes of a Miskatonic University source book. And then also uh, H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham book covers uh, the university grounds in pretty good detail. And so we're just going to kind of talk about the school, how it can be used, the faculty, the the grounds, that sort of thing. You know, the, the personality cool. of the school. You know, try and bring it out and make it into more of a character. 
And there's a lot of variety in the way it's been portrayed, right? There's Lovecraft himself sort of put it on par with Harvard as a you know respectable institution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of uh, contemporary writing about it kind of turns it into more of a um, supernatural, a school of supernatural weirdness. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, official uh, curriculum about the occult. Yeah, the the more contemporary stuff it does, including kind of what we do with it, makes it feel more closer to Hogwarts. Yeah. Where it's right. just sort of wacky and scary and weird. But in the source material and the in-game universe stuff, I think it actually really fits better for it to be a prestigious, wealthy university. Mm-hmm. I do, too. I think it's much more Lovecraftian to have it be that there are secrets hidden in its uh, shadowed walls. I mean, that there are um, shadowed walls, shadowed halls, halls perhaps. Halls. I was just going to let you roll with it. <laughs> I misquoted our both, own podcast. I was like, maybe it's like, a, maybe it's like a Harry Potter analog, you know, and you have the walls that open up and just secret right. rooms. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I love it that there in there are things hidden in the special collections, but it's not as though, uh, you know, it's it's advertising these things. Yeah, that these are things to be secreted away and and discovered through good library skills and and that kind of thing. Um, that they don't know what they have, or that they don't know that they're getting close to the truth. In in you know, some professor may be getting. Uh, close to some revelation re- that that's terrible, but it's not as though they're saying, you know, come to my class, you know, stop by after class and I'll teach you a spell. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I've got the first Miskatonic University guide with Cthulhu drawing himself on the cover, and it has, like, a list of uh, classes and departments and stuff, and yeah, they put some blatantly strange things in there. I think partly just for, you know, humor value or anything else you know for under law the missing client and you professional ethics uh, and right. surgical intervention i mean it's just they put some silly stuff in there because well <laughs> it's fun but i really think in the game setting having a few classes that seem a little bit kind of outside of the norm might be cool but for the most part you're probably better off playing it straight I think that if you you can have those kind of classes, but they would have to be almost obfuscated by title. Mm-hmm. You know, so you would have uh, comparative religion uh, thirty three oh seven or something, and that would be that particular class is all about um, you know deep one worship or some crazy crap like that. Yeah. Um, but it's it's you know it's a comparative religion class, so they also talk about other things as well. But and that you know, it would focuses be on yeah. weird pagan religions. And it would be more of the agenda of that specific professor, right? Not a school sanctioned. Yeah, let's have some Dagon worship. Oh, but make sure to change the name in case you know any uh, uh, parents happen to look at the syllabus. Or it could right. just be it could be. I mean, since Dagon does have a real world a real real world uh, analog, you could he could be doing an actual Dagon class, you know. Some Sumerian mythology, mm-hmm. um, and and then incorporate different aspects of Dagon into the classwork. I mean, there's there's different ways to do it. I, I agree with you that it shouldn't be this tongue in cheek kind of 
oh, he's going to Miskatonic, you know, and, and everybody's a member of the arts department or the um, religion department or something like that, you know, applied magical uh, mm-hmm. trees or something. I don't know. Uh, I think it should be an actual, I mean, it was an analog for, for, um, for Harvard, like Chad had mentioned. So I think it should be treated like that. Uh, and then you can, I think it's much more horrific to have the subtle little changes in there um, that make it stranger and stranger. Yeah, I think that's my point. I mean, I'm, I'm reticent to tell anyone how to, you know, do your game, do do whatever, do whatever is keeping you, your, your, your players having fun. Um, I think just for personal taste and to keep the horror up, that that uh, subtler is better. Yeah, you could treat it as a Hogwarts. I mean, you know, you know what? I would play that at a con. Like if it was if if Miskatonic was really just turned into this zany <laughs> Hogwarts thing, I'd sit down at that table and I'd play it. Um, not yeah, sure I would want to play a campaign of it, but you know, there's there's different flavors. But I yeah I like I like uh, the more serious take. Yeah, treat it like a university that's respectable. Yeah, that you can get an actual degree that you wouldn't be ashamed to show on your CV. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and the vast majority of students would just get normal degrees and graduate and never have any contact with anything even remotely weird. Yeah, you know it's and it really does happen at respectable universities that you have rogue. The tenure system in particular yeah. promotes certain a certain amount of crazy. You know, like I had a, I went to an honors English class once in college, and it ended up being, I mean, the description was kind of weird. I don't remember what the title was, but it ended up basically being Zen and Kurt Vonnegut, and we would read Kurt Vonnegut and then meditate, and it was just Whoa. like totally you not. Can, not you what can I tell expected. that that professor had tenure. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Turns out he was kind of uh, notorious for very strange classes. But you know, you have that. That does happen, and and that's kind of the beauty of of tenure. I think that's Lovecraft was kind of referencing that when he um, talked about the the academy. You know, mm-hmm. Talked about academia and its uh, and how weird stuff ends up falling into its hands. You know, and the school is obviously very wealthy in Lovecraft's mind because it sponsored this major expedition to Antarctica. Right. No, that was a university-sponsored trip. And so that was, you know, two large cargo ships full of personnel and supplies and these new planes and all this stuff was all paid for the universe by the university. Yeah, that's a wealthy institution. So I yeah, like the idea of it being one of the super highbrow type schools that has this dark underside. Mm-hmm. And you could also go the other the other route with it. I mean, you could like it, literally make it a a clone of like Harvard or Yale um, mm-hmm. or Brown even, um, to where the vast majority of everyone involved has no clue that there's this thing going on. Uh, and in fact, there is nothing going on. The only thing that they have is these f- series of failed expeditions uh, for whatever reasons. And then they happen to possess a really comprehensive antiquarian book collection, which is not uncommon for an old Ivy League school. So, I mean, that could be it. That could be the extent of the of the university's involvement within the mythos. Just the fact that it actually holds the said books that people need access to. Uh, and they've accidentally 
um, stumbled across some things in Antarctica and where and wherever, uh, just because they're the the you know the university that has the money to send these expeditions out for research and whatever. And happen to have somebody and, dissolve and it, in the library after being attacked by a dog. Right. I mean that's <laughs> that happens, you know. Yeah, this is sure the thing. I'm sure there's a real world uh, thing for that, you know. Oh, of course. Uh, dog attack equals puddle. Yeah. Outside the children's <laughs> library. No. No. No, that's that's not okay. That's not a thing. No. It's not, it's not okay. It's not okay. It's right. not okay. Yeah. Are you sure? Trigger trigger warning. <laughs> trigger warning. Uh, with Miskatonic, there's been some. You had mentioned, you know, the uh, the Miskatonic University book put out by Chaosium, uh, reprinted, I think, in '05. Um, there's the Arkham Unveiled um, book, um, which had a good bit of background info and stuff uh, for uh, Miskatonic in general. Yeah. Um, that's been out of print for a while now as well, unfortunately. Then there was this one thing I noticed in your show notes uh, that you mentioned, the, uh, the Ex Libris Miskatonicae, which yeah. was put out, I think, originally maybe... 92 or 93 uh, by Necronomicon Press uh, written by uh, Joan Stanley. This is a list, a literal list of, it's called the Ex Libris Miskatonicae, a catalog of specials, a catalog of selected items from the special collections in the Miskatonic University Library. Um, and it is just a list of the different books that are in the special items collection. I have been trying for years to get my hands on this book. Um, if you're not familiar with Necronomicon press, it comes out as a small, almost like a chat book. Uh, it's, it's like a six by nine sized, right? It's not very thick. Um, but I've, I've seen a copy, um, and the text is smashed in there and it's, it's literally a list of title, author, date, of everything in that special items collection. Um, they are extremely hard to get a hold of, unfortunately. Uh, you can buy some from anywhere from 40 bucks up to, um, you know, up to um, uh, three or $400, depending on if you're, you're brave enough to buy that. I've, uh, I've every so often I actually contact uh, Necronomicon Press because I, I heard rumor that there are some, undistributed copies of this sitting around at Necronomicon press, uh, in a box somewhere. Um, and I've been trying to pester them to give me one, <laughs> let me buy it from them. Um, but I've, as of yet, I've never gotten a response back, <laughs> which is probably not a good thing either. Um, but I, this is another, just an example of one of those things that, um, you can pull in. I mean, it, I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I could do a whole book on this alone. This this is a flipping awesome resource um, for Miskatonic University, um, and it's it's heavily footnoted. It's got a lot of research involved in it. It's got all kinds of stuff in there. It's really really cool, uh, and it's got histories of different books. So like, it's got histories of books we've covered here, um, like. Uh, the Narcotic Manuscripts, the Eltdown Shards, Solano Fragments, all of these things have got histories added to it. Um, 
as in addition to the list that I mentioned earlier. And it's it's a fantastic resource. <laughs> it's like a really wish I could get my hands on a copy. The variety of the school and the utility of it, the the recognizability of it is a good part of why I went with the name for the podcast. Because Miskatonic has no relation to anything other than Lovecraft and the mythos and the game and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. It's also a nice framing convention for various uh, mm-hmm. segments and, you know, the special collections. It's a nice yeah. tone thing. The bestiary is sort of. It a- helped it. Yeah. It helped it to. Yeah, you can be serious without actually being serious, which is, is very helpful for us. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can. Uh, it can sound authentic very easily. It's like, oh, where you? Oh, I went to Miskatonic University. Oh, where the hell is that? At? Oh, it's up in Arco, Massachusetts. I don't know if you've ever been there. No, I've never heard of it. It's like, oh well, it's an Ivy League school. Sorry. Like, oh, I never oh, heard of school. it. It's an Ivy League school. <laughs> uh, I live in the South. I can get away with that. Take <laughs> yeah, that in the South. We only have one Ivy League school in Texas. It's called Rice University. <laughs> And it's nowhere near the rest of the Ivy League schools. True. But uh, I've done that before. I do that quite often, actually. It works out really nice. I have a big Miskatonic University uh, sticker on the back of my truck. Um, and people ask, oh, you went to Miskatonic? It's like, yeah, dude. And I have my Miskatonic shirts. And they go, like, oh, that's cool. What'd you get? Uh, comparative religion. Really? Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> comparative religion at Miskatonic. Awesome. I studied comparative religion at Miskatonic University. Wow, that must have been really fun. Yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I'm really glad I went. Um, anyway, back to the game, though. <laughs> um, but, Dan, it seems to me that uh, Miskatonic has kind of been your home base for your campaigns for a, a long time, yeah? Yeah. Well, I've done the Miskatonic Area Paranormal Society now for a few years, and I decided that I needed that kind of a framing device for campaigns. It just made sense to have some reason for characters to do what they do. And the Mm -hmm. school is such a large organization with so many people that it just makes so much sense that you're going to wind up with any number of personalities and stories and and things that are going to come out of it. You know, it's got its own culture, like any large school would. And I I couldn't actually think, I think it would be pretty cool to even have like a campaign that takes place where the players are, you know, you start off as freshmen and the campaign is just them going to school and trying to figure out some of the weird stuff that's going on. Yeah, I could see that student campaign for sure. Mm -hmm. There's even rules in the, in the Miskatonic University book for that. Yep. For advancing through the grades trying to think of what a book it might have been in the uh, the book of cthulhu or the book of cthulhu 2 um there's a short story by an i can i'll have to try and figure out who it is but basically the story is a class like a comparative religion class or maybe an applied mathematics class or something like that where essentially the, the professor is recruiting cultists in his class right um but uh, it takes a twist towards the end, and you find out that actually, where it, it assume you assume the entire time that the school is evil, 
you know, that they're, they're helping the cultist endeavor by recruiting new members, uh, you actually end up finding out at the end that um, the whole point of this is to call the serious from the not so serious uh, and to find the, those dangerous individuals and eliminate them as quickly as possible in a, in a typically horrific uh, Lovecraftian way, uh, which is a really another cool concept you could use the school for. Like they're completely in the know you know, and, and then there's occasionally there's these professors that have tenure and they're able to do whatever the hell they want. And so they, uh, you know, they, they call the student population for the crazies and uh, try and keep it as normal as possible for everyone else. Hmm. That's kind of an interesting. I'll have to figure out what yeah. they know. The school happens a, to really attract good these weird people. That... Yeah, that's the whole. Yeah, exactly. And then he, he, this professor would like get really close to certain students that showed a proclivity for magic or a proclivity for, for cultist leanings or whatever, or were really dark in one way or another. And then he would, uh, um, some things would happen. I'm not going to spoil the story, but eventually I've already spoiled the story. He would perform a ritual, which would, uh, summon, uh, Yogg-Sothoth and basically feed those students to Yogg-Sothoth. Um, in the woods uh, somewhere uh, in the Massachusetts hillsides, I guess. Um, and then, and then, you know, that was how they dealt with <laughs> the crazy students who, who had the proclivity for, um, for being cultists or, or wanting to bring back gnarls up or something. They would, they would use that knowledge against them, and make them think that they were summoning something horrible. And in fact, they're just feeding Yogg. Which is, in fact, Man, that, summoning that's... something horrible. It is summoning something hor horrible. <laughs> and, in fact, I believe, if I if I remember correctly, the way it works out is the star student of that summoning, right? So there's always one student who stands above the rest whenever the professor does this. Uh, in that student, um, the professor ends up dying during this ritual. And the, the, the student who is the star student takes his place and then calls the rest for the for the rest of his lifetime until he finds this this creme de la creme of cultist wannabes, and then he performs the ritual again, and he dies, and his star student. So it's this kind of unbroken line of of death and life and rebirth and summoning. It's great. Hmm. It's a good story. I'll have to figure out which one it is. It's been a few years since I read it. Hmm. I like that. I, I, that's something. It makes me think of what actually happens at universities. You often, it's like every department has one sort of uh, charismatic, uh, you know, a teacher that everyone likes, a professor that everyone right. um, either likes or is like feels like they've got some, you know, the insight that you need. Um, I remember in the psychology department, the the history department, the English department in in my university had these. These little, well, even even there were even factions, you know, within a department. You'd have followers of one professor versus followers of the philosophy of another professor, and so it's very culty, right? It's very uh, you have, yeah, without a doubt. you know, you have they wield power, and these young people, and I, I remember being one of them, uh, could be easily just sort of enamored by um, new ideas that are really fascinating and kind of make you rethink your world um so yeah this it's it's ripe for people you know little clusters of proto cults or like you said the, in that story an actual full-blown cult mm -hmm. yeah and one thing that i haven't 
made use of yet, but I hope to, that was uh, probably invented for the uh, the MU source book that I remember the first time I looked through it and I, I saw this and I was like, oh wow, that's so cool, is that there's actually a little diagram showing the tunnels under the university. Yeah, that's a great map. Yeah. That's <laughs> totally fun. nonsensical, but it's great. Yeah. But I love it. It's like you idea. can tell they added that in just because it's like, man, what if there are tunnels under Miskatonic University? Holy crap, we could go crazy with that. Uh-huh. And so that's what they did. Yep. And I love the idea that they're actually used in the wintertime to get from one building to another just by faculty and students because, well, they're, you know, they're probably going to be a bit warmer because they're insulated by the ground and there's no snow. So they actually are well used in some areas. I, I just, mm-hmm. I've, I've loved that idea. And it seems fairly, you know, clear that, you know, Arkham itself probably has lots of those kind of things. There would be the idea of like pirate tunnels, you know, in the area. There's, you know, there's the ghoul t- tunnels and, it just makes sense that, well, why would the university not be a part of that whole potential network? Well, I mean, Harvard itself has a, an actual underground network. It's probably where they, uh, where the inspiration came from. Oh. Um, and yeah. And there are, there's a, there are groups now they call, I think they are call they call themselves hackers. Um, there's, there's a term for breaking in, but anyway, you, you can break into these tunnels and sort of go, urban it's not quite urban well i guess harvard's urban um spelunking where you go into these abandoned tunnels i forget what i think that they may just be uh conduits for i actually don't know if they're if they are for people or for uh, conduits for power and whatnot utilities Hmm. yes they stretch from the cambridge electric company plant on western avenue soldiers field to the law school and the science labs buried in the depths of each house and numerous yard, business school, laboratory, athletics, uh, and law school buildings. Its entrance is an entrance to this bizarre network. Cool. Yep. That's a real thing. So there's That's a, crazy a great start point to help flesh it out if you want to make use of these in your game. You know, make mm-hmm. them steam tunnels, which makes it more atmospheric because you could have a leaky pipe somewhere that makes it kind of misty in an area and. Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, the condensation dripping off the pipes, you know, possibly old uh, gas lines. If you're doing it in the 1920s, well, these were, were put in previously and there were gas mm-hmm. lines set up to uh, to light up lamps. You could also go, um, <laughs> this is kind of uh, cheating a little bit, but given it's in an urban area, um, we can assume that Arkham is fairly urbanized, mm-hmm. even if it's not a giant town. At some point in its past, it it had to have had a cattle market, so you could go with the cow tunnel theory of New York as well. <laughs> yeah, just kind of cheating a little bit, but but not entirely un, unfounded. Yeah, that's a mm-hmm. uh, a possibility, and I think it'd be kind of cool just to have you know because the school by the maps that have been produced, it's not like right there at the water, so. You could have it simply connect into some other tunnels that would then lead to, you know, the cattle ones, which would probably be closer to the river or to train lines and that sort of thing. Right. There might be one or two people 
total that actually know how to interconnect all these. And then there's the ghouls. Yeah, anytime you say tunnel. Yeah. yeah. Ghouls are surely behind. Soon to follow, yeah. Um, and we know that Arkham has uh, plenty of ghoul culture. Yeah. In the game. Also, you could, game you, could, you could take... Um, you could just use particular classes like you could have a chemistry class that goes haywire somehow and creates this new substance that you think is new and actually is like some sort of proto shagath thing um you know kind of like thinking of the um the gila strain uh human cell strain you know gila the ones that helped cure polio i don't know if you're familiar with that Mm -hmm. anyway uh, it's a particular cancer strain that they took out of a woman uh that didn't die uh, outside of the body, so it kept going and going. Every day it would double in size, basically. Uh, so it could be like this Gila strain of Shaga thing, and so every day it just doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles. And they think it's a good thing at first. They're taking samples and replicating it so they can perform tests and whatnot, and then the samples double and double and double and double, and then it keeps, then maybe like quadruples, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and then you have like these little Shagaths all over the place. Um, the, all over the lab that just start eating everything. That's always fun. <laughs> I'm going to throw a link to the Henrietta's Tumor episode of Radiolab there. Oh, yes. On the Gila reference. Famous tumors. If you haven't, if, you, if you've never heard of, of um, Henrietta Lacks, I think that's her name, isn't it, Chad? Uh, Henrietta, yep. Henrietta Lacks. Yep. Um, that's a, uh, a really interesting story about the lady whose cells cells yeah her cancer cells have lived on forever basically long after she died in the 30s hmm. or 50s rather 50 um and the, the only case of that ever happening actually that's where all of our human cell replication comes from is this one lady's cells or some variant thereof yeah really interesting episode and you know the family becomes kind of confused like this is a sort of yeah. strange thing to have our you know, and it's not like they got any money from it. No, and they, well, the, the worst part about that is they had no one actually explain things to them either. Mm-hmm. So for years, they thought that there was her daughter who, we'll, we'll just say this as it is, who was fairly uneducated and didn't understand the concept of science in the general, didn't understand the concept of cells at, at first either. When she first heard of Hela, thought that there were like 10,000 clones of her mother walking around the planet earth you know what i mean mm-hmm. um, which was really somewhat disturbing for her but uh, it's a very interesting story but you could easily incorporate that into miskatonic university and just change change it from um you know being the uh tuscany uh, that's that's another interesting aspect now we're going to get into it instead of it being the the tuscany uh experiment or there where they the tuscany labs where they replicate a gila to cure polio Maybe they're doing the same thing at Miskatonic, only it failed, and they accidentally, instead of using Gila, they were using their own, you know, mutating culture, which happened to be Shagath cells or something of that nature that they mm-hmm. recovered from. I don't know one of the guys that survived uh, uh, Danforth that came back from Antarctica or something. Yeah. Uh, so you could you could really go crazy on that and incorporate history again, and in, in that sense, and it makes things a little bit more realistic and crazy at the same time definitely which if you're not listening to radio labs by the way guys you're you're fools that's a uh, that's an absolutely wonderful podcast uh, podcast and radio show that is exquisitely produced and then chock a block full of 
awesome game just ideas, right? I mean, every crazy. time I listen to that, I'm like, oh, I really want to put that in the game. Oh, wait a minute. This is a really well-known podcast. Maybe that's not a good idea. Right. I had never heard about it before. It's, uh, it's, yeah, you should listen. Yeah, I mean, as a podcast really fan, I, I highly, highly recommend it. And it's all science, and they do a really good job. Cool. Check it out. Yeah, their their level, their quality level on Radio Labs is par none. I mean, it's there is nothing really that compares to to Jad's production work. It, it is crazy. It, yeah, it's almost avant garde, right? He's he, yeah, it's he does, totally. He, he does a. It's it's unlike NPR in in that he will use. Um, little syllables and things that people say just as almost like bumpers between thoughts and he'll um, it really is like sort of audio poetry it's it's awesome and I know for a fact uh, through some some folks I know at, at WNYC that he spends all of his damn time in the booth editing he, he's just yeah. an obsessive and I and you guys know from if you hear it just all the sounds and the sound effects and the little things right. You think of all the edits he's doing. Um, no, I can't. I mean, just on the opening sequence for Radio Lab is like six months worth of work. Yeah. And then he changes it every six months, so it's it's just it's mind-boggling. Yeah. But I, I did actually hear in an episode where he said that it takes six months to produce one episode, um, yeah. considering I mean, they have an hour-long episode at least twice a month. That's saying something. Yeah. I mean, they have multiple episodes in production at the same time, but. Yeah, and they have shorts as well, which are typically anywhere from like ten to twenty minutes long. But yeah. um, those are every week. We are so perhaps it's, it's, if we, if this was Ken and Robin, we would have wandered into a uh, a podcast hut. Yeah, we were just going to a podcast hut. Shifted gears slightly, and I apologize for that. No, that's good. It's I I sort of forgot that we were on a podcast for a second. Yeah, it's fun when that happens. Discussing so. about this podcast. Yeah. Um. I just wanted to mention one thing that I think is maybe an underutilized um, class of resources when you're gaming in, at Miskatonic or any university is the staff, the um, the people who you know the builders, the the shop people, uh, the groundsmen. The, yeah, the steam plant or the you know the the power plant people. The the blue collar of a university is actually its own fascinating and unusual entity. Mm, um, yeah, they often know more than the professors do about what's going on. You know about uh, you know socially what's going on. They they might even know uh, things about uh, the academic world. They, they, it's an awesome rumor network, and they are just kind of more observant in some ways because they are not stuck you know, looking at research for their entire uh, job. So they're out and about, they travel more. Um, I found this at, at my university, at, at a university I worked at actually, that the person to talk to about how to get something done is the guys who, I worked in a psychology lab and I would go down in the basement and they had this full machine shop and those guys were the guys who knew everything. And they also were sort of lifetime um, employees, so they knew all the way back, like to the '50s, of what was going on and what what you know. I would ask just out of curiosity, like, what is this conduit that nobody's using anymore? And they would say, oh, "Well, this is used to we used to have steam power, and you know, you can go up to X place and you can find the old steam place that that was torn down, but the foundation's still there." And just they know the infrastructure of the place, 
that's like a could you know a fun resource that's unusual. So you're not always talking to Professor Armitage about X and Y. Yeah. Yeah, and um, my uh, my uncle um, was actually a, a groundskeeper and machine worker for um, the University of Oklahoma for um, many decades. Um, he was a gardener as well. And it, there's actually stories of the botanists at U- University of Oklahoma coming to ask my uncle questions because he was such a well-known and really well good gardener, I guess. He had extremely well green thumb that he could just do things that would boggle their minds and recall stuff that, you know, they could not do just because they're in a lab all day, I guess. And he's got real world knowledge of, you know, 60 or 70 years worth of groundskeeping and um, flowers and all kinds of crazy stuff that he would come up with, um, which was kind of interesting, you know, and and he would tell stories just like you had described. Oh, well, I remember back in 19... Uh, 42 after the war or right after the war started and we had this thing over here and half the staff left and went over to this place because we had some secret project going on. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy uh, anecdotal stuff that they can give you as well. Yeah. And, and that would give the uh, keeper the opportunity to create a few characters of their own that rather than trying to, you know, personify something, you know, somebody that Lovecraft created like Armitage, you know, sure, you can always do your own spin on him, but it might be easier to simply create your own characters that, you know, these are the people that the PCs are going to deal with the most. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to look at is that, I mean, in a, in a in an Ivy League setting like Miskatonic, how often do you have access to Dr. Armitage? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just nobody can... You can't just walk up and start talking to Dr. Armitage. I mean, you might be able to, but he's probably not going to pay you any mind. He sure ain't going to answer your questions. You know what I mean? Um, so sometimes those kind of characters, those back-end characters, are more accessible to other NPCs or other characters and stuff like that, especially if they're student characters. Those kind of guys are, are much more accessible than the high-end mm-hmm. professors who are doing nothing but research and might not even teach anymore. Not only that, but then there are wealth, you know, just fonts of knowledge um, that you can tap into. Yeah, and they can know all the the background rumors and stuff, and and I I just really yeah, like that the, idea. The thing about the thing about that also is that they're not seen. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. how many times do you see a janitor and you just don't even think about it and you just keep talking? You know, and so they hear everything. Um, they see everything just because they're doing nothing but the same thing over over and over again every day. So, I mean, they see everything that goes on. They hear everything that goes on. And then usually, the, like Chad had mentioned, the gossip train there is is par none. It's, 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 it's insane the amount of stuff that they can pick up on. Yeah, yeah, they can, their observations can point out, you know, they can see patterns and things that other people would Changes of, nuanced changes of habit that most people would just overlook that, Mm -hmm. oh, well, that's odd, he didn't take his, he's got it in the wrong hand today, or, I mean, just little stuff that no one else would even think about. Yep, very game-worthy kind of little stuff. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Stuff that would red flag players. Mm -hmm. Like you were talking about the campaign of um, student uh, university students, which is a Mm -hmm. you know a great idea for a campaign. It would be fun too to have a um, blue collar Miskatonic University player campaign, right? 
when you could that have, would be pretty cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you would you would have access that that students wouldn't have. <laughs> True. Um, which I guess could be a problem. It could be a problem or an opportunity. But yeah. Right. Yeah. You could be the guy who gets to uh, mop the floors in the special collections department. They don't even pay mind to you. Yeah. Or like the medical school janitor. Or, or, and this is true for most groundskeepers of this day, of that day and age, especially, um, if you're a groundskeeper, you have keys and you have keys to everything. That's what I mean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have Mm -hmm. keys to every single thing. So even restricted areas, they have keys to that. They don't, there's, especially in a college of the day and age, there's not much uh, security to speak of. So you end up with, you know, the janitors have master keys to every building every room, every closet, yep. literally everything. They probably have access to stuff like that, that a lot of the higher faculty, you know, can't get into. It's like, well, yeah, why do you need they to get into the... Oh, you can't go into there. Yeah, you know, why do you need to get into the electrical yeah, well, room? Oh, right. Or better yet, why do you need to get into the special collections department? Hmm. I mean, they don't even ask the janitor. He just walks right in. Yep. But then you've got to go try and make a appointment with Dr. Armitage and whatnot. Mm-hmm. That guy just strolls in there with his mop and bucket, and there it is. So, yeah, that's got a lot of cool potential. Even just having a single character, player character, that was employed by the school would be an an amazingly valuable resource for a campaign. Huge, right? I'm thinking in the Maps campaign, that might be my next character. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, not to break the game, but I think it'd be really fun to have a kind of, you know, a different view of the university as a PC. Yeah, yeah. And that would be a challenge to, you know, run that kind of thing, too. I think that would bring about a lot more improvisation as far as the school, because, you know, nobody wants to sit Mm. while somebody starts digging through the book trying to find something that's already been documented. You, You just roll with it and keep track of what you come up with to keep it consistent right but yeah that would be a lot of fun the uh that would be interesting i, I would enjoy that kind of campaign yeah or just a one-off even would be pretty cool a janitorial mm-hmm. crew that is trying to keep things yeah the stable. janitor saved the world yeah <laughs> yeah that's good awesome yeah i guess blue collar saviors that's pretty cool sure it's a different departure too from your typical you know learned mm-hmm. you know antiquarian style Lovecraftian characters. Yeah. And you could you even have still your, have uh, that kind sure. of mindset. I mean, they're at a, you know, a, an institution of learning with full access to everything. They could definitely see somebody mm-hmm. who just it's like, oh, well, what's this professor yeah, working but maybe on? They're... Just kind of sit down and start reading. Right. Yeah. Or shuffle through notes. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's a savant. And so he, he makes, uh, he makes uh, at night while he's cleaning up the professor's rooms or offices, he makes little suggestions on how to improve his research next time. Yeah. <laughs> if only there were a movie like that. <laughs> oh, 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 that's a good point, right? How do you like them apples? How do you like them apples? Yeah, no, I mean... I got a number. That's my Australian. That doesn't come out right. It's close. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It really is different than other blue-collar communities because... It is at a university, and I, I would say absolutely that it's a uh, a different level of education. Even if, um, and also universities, I don't know in the twenties, but universities now certainly give perks to staff to up, you know, to to help their education. They can often take classes mm-hmm. for reduced, you know, tuition, that kind of thing. So you could easily have either PCs or NPCs that are, you know also in their spare time are working on a biology degree uh, or whatever. Of course, uh, I don't, this probably isn't as true as it is now um, then, but 
um, they could be considered, I mean, so far as their income levels, most of the time they were paid as much as like a, um, an entry level professor would be, which is not much as much as you might think that might be. Mm -hmm. It's not that much money, but, uh, I mean, they do work on that kind of scale. It's like a tenure scale. Um, and I can tell you that my uncle, when he finally retired for health reasons, I mean, he was tenured quote unquote, um, you know, as a groundsman, which meant that they couldn't get rid of him if they tried, <laughs> it was up to him to leave, which is a really weird concept. But evidently that, that follows over just in that university system in general, it follows over to almost every single position within it. Uh, I can, I can confirm that having been a university employee that it is, <laughs> I, I, this is going to sound bad, but it is very hard to get fired. Yeah. Like I tried <laughs> really hard to get fired, but you know, it's, uh, you're right. It's not exactly a tenure system, but because of the, the, because the rules of employment are kind of based on that. Um, right. Once yeah. you have so many years there, they really can't do anything to you any longer. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, which is interesting because you could have, you know, a janitor that's meddling, but he's been there for 40 years, which means they can't fire him. So maybe they try to take a, a different route to get rid of him. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, they can move him around. Yep. They can move yeah, him to different give departments. Give him the crappiest job. Now we would like you to clean the tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> that's your job now. Uh, At night. Right. Here, carry this dead corpse with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, map out these tunnels. Here's a candle and a pencil. Right. <laughs> oh, actually, yeah, you could have ghouls in at Miskatonic University be old employees. That 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 would. That That's would a good one too. Well. I like that yeah. as well. You could go the pulpy route and just go like over the top fantastical and have like one of the professors be like a an avatar of Yogg-Sothoth and he's just these floating <laughs> globes of light. Uh huh. But only during That'd office hours. Sure. Right. <laughs> Only <laughs> he turns into a toad at the end of the day and sits in his little terrarium in the corner. I was thinking that, you know, during class hours, he's like just a guy. And then if you go and visit, you know, during his uh, his in office times, then, you know, he might be <laughs> floating and glowing. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's awesome. Or totally yeah. <laughs> oh Yeah, that's great. love to hear from our listeners and we got lots of different ways you can reach out to us our main contact email address is feedback at mu-podcast.com we also have a twitter account at mu underscore podcast and you can join our rc channel on the feedback page of the website we have a providence rhode island voicemail number it's 401-400-0-MUP that's 401-400-0687 or you can use our speak pipe link located on the website Ask a question, leave us a liner, say who you are, and I'm enrolled at the Miskatonic University podcast, and give us a, a hearty go pods for our home team, the Fighting Cephalopods. Our website is mu-podcast.com, and you can find our show notes for this episode at mu-podcast.com slash 60. That's the number 60, the big 60, the 60, yeah. the almost yeah. retirement age. Oh, my, yeah. <laughs> but only 20 years ago. <laughs> Our forums are at mu-podcast.com slash campus. Come join the community and be a part of the conversations. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Class is dismissed.
The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is property of Chaosium, Inc. The written works of H.P. Lovecraft are held in the United States public domain. All other works mentioned in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of this show is copyright of the Miskatonic University podcast under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike license. And for the main topic, we talk about our alma mater. Nope. Miskatonic University yeah. is also the, uh, the, the name used by a group of idiots who produce a award-winning, um, almost one of the most popular podcasts known to man called the Miskatonic University Podcast. We haven't won almost any awards. Have, I, don't, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Well, since it was the most popular Known to man, I thought we were just lying all together. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, we've been nominated a few times. But I thought we were just going all out. No. No. <laughs> all out in the sense of a lie? Essentially. It's not lying if it's marketing, right? <laughs> right. The fine line. Yeah.